Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a vision for you big book study. My name is Melanie C., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Oregon. Today is Tuesday, September 9th, 2014. Today we are reading from the big book, and we are on page 155, paragraph 1. Today's readers are Elaine K., 12 Steps, Jaina N., 12 Traditions, Reading the text, Marie P., Elena R., Nicole S., and Rachel M. The reference number for yesterday, Monday, September 8, 2014, is 6850. 6850. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Helene Kay to read the 12 steps. Good morning. This is Helene, Recover Compulsive Eater in South Florida. Here are the steps we took, which are suggested as a program of recovery. One, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continued to take personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, saw through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you. I will now ask Jaina N. to read the Twelve Traditions. Good morning, everyone. This is Jaina N. The 12 Traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. 
personal recovery depends on OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may expect himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Ten, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues. Hence, the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11. Our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and film. 12. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. Thank you for letting you. me do this service. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute your phone once you're done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today, we resume our study at the Big Book on page 155, paragraph 1, and I will ask Marie P. to begin reading. Good morning. This is me, P. Marie P., a compulsive overeater that's recovered. Um, good morning, Mel. Uh, it's good to be here. His call to the clergyman led him presently to a to a certain resident of the town, who, though formerly able and respected, was then nearing the nadir of his alcoholic despair. It was the usual situation: home in jeopardy, wife ill, children distracted bills and arrears, and standing damaged. He had a desperate desire to stop, but saw no way and no way out, for he was earnestly for he had earnestly tried many avenues of escape. 
painfully aware of being somehow abnormal, the man did not fully realize what it meant to be alcoholic. You know, I can identify <clears throat> with both with both people. Um, in in the past, you know, I tried and tried to be abstinent, and I lost. Uh, the reason being that I was not totally convinced that I was powerless. Now that I have recovered, it is so easy because God just helps me. I don't, I don't need to worry about it anymore. Food does not appeal to me. And um, then. This second man in this paragraph, it says he read he was nearing the nadir of his alcoholic despair, and I didn't know what nadar meant, so I looked it up, and it was the lowest point of his alcoholic despair. And I can identify with that too. Um, it says here he had a desperate desire to stop but saw no way out, for he had earnestly tried many avenues of escape. Well, you know, I've been in OA for a long, long time, actually since 1974. And up until about a year and a half ago, when I got in touch with A Vision for You, I never had much abstinence. I would go one week or two weeks, and then I would fail. And this went on for all those years. And I thought I was doing a good job, and I was not, definitely not. So I identify with both of these people. Now I have to reach out to get a sponsee, and I I did and it worked great. With that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Marie. Who would like to comment on what was read today? This is Bella. Can I share? Good morning, Bella. Yes. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bella, and I am a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Melanie, for doing this service, and thank you very much, everybody on the line. The man did not fully realize what it means to be alcoholic. Wow, it's really me. Yes, before the program, I didn't realize what means for me that I am a compulsive overeater. I didn't even know that there is such a thing. I knew that I am over, uh, overweight. I knew that it's because of me. I knew that I am not responsible because I don't take care of me. Uh, I couldn't anymore to blame myself, so I blame everybody. You know, I knew that I have, that I am eating emotionally, so I blamed everybody all the time. Because of you, I eat. Because of you, I am angry. Because of you, nothing to do with me. I felt, you know, I am... A victim. Uh, sometimes I even felt so bad and so guilty that I have feelings and 
I didn't know how to live with my feelings, I to, how to respect myself and my feelings. And thank you, God. Thank you, God. Now that I'm in the program, I know that God gave me a gift to be a compulsive overeater because only by being aware that I am a compulsive overeater, I accept and admit that I am powerless and I choose to be connected to God. I know that my disease is allergy in the body and obsession in the mind. I know that to, 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 to get, to take care of my allergy in the body, I have to take out my allergy food. And the obsession in the mind, I have the steps. But the most important thing, I am powerless. I am powerless because I am human. And this is the way that God created me. And I am so thankful that I am connected to God today. And I don't have to prove to nobody my existence, my smartness, my well-being. Yes, I am a compulsive overeater, and it's nothing to do with me. And I, today I live in freedom with my compulsive overeater. Thank you very much, and I pass. Thank you. Who else would like this to share on what was read? This is hi, Jana. Dana. Hi, Dana. And hi, Janice. Good morning. Jana first. Yes, good morning, everyone. This is Gina N. Uh, from Virginia. And um, I wanted to share on the last two sentences in this paragraph, um, especially the, the comment where it says that he saw no way out for he had earnestly tried many avenues of escape. And I just wanted to talk about how many avenues of escape I've tried. I guess I didn't count them up, but it's probably somewhere near 25 different approaches to learning to manage my eating and make my body healthy. Um, I've been doing this since about 1970. And some of those times I was in OA, some of those times I wasn't. Um, and every time that I found one of these ways, I lost weight and I began to feel healthy and I began to think, oh, all is well. And then I always came back to the food. The next line says, painfully aware of being somehow abnormal. The man did not fully realize what it, is meant, to, what it meant to be alcoholic. I, I began to understand after years and years and years that I just, I had a problem that seemed to be beyond other people, other women friends of mine who also had eating problems. Um, and I knew I just didn't react normally to food. I also had an awareness for many, many years that I was not like other people. I was abnormal. I, I couldn't do things. I, I had attitudes. I had non-functional behavior in my life, and I could not be a normal person. And I was around normal people all the time feeling inadequate, noticing that I wasn't like them and I couldn't do the things they could do and feeling shame and confusion. But I never associated that abnormality in my personality and my character with my abnormalities related to the food. I knew I had both, but I just thought I was a defective human being. I had all these problems from this, that, and the other, and therefore 
I had all of these problems. Overeating was one of them, and all these other things were part of it as well, procrastination, inability to think, those kinds of things. It wasn't until I came to this meeting, A Vision for You, eight weeks ago, and began listening, that I began to understand that, oh my goodness, these other abnormalities in my personality are all directly linked to my overeating. I never understood that part before. So I've now been absent seven weeks and a little seven and a half, I guess. Um, and I am beginning to become normal, I think. Uh, but it's not a fun experience for me at all. It's very, very painful. And I'm trusting all of those wonderful people on the line who talk about their recovery that this will be okay, I will get through this, and I will come out the other side. But my experience right now that is so painful is that I am feeling many, many, many feelings every day, often. And I, um, I'm not used to feeling all these feelings because every time I felt something coming to a feeling, I would run. I would run into food, run into TV, run into acting out behavior, screaming, blaming someone else for something or whatever, and I didn't ever have to sit with and feel my feelings inside me. And that's what's happening now, and it's a very new and very unpleasant experience. But I am hanging on to the promises, and I believe all of you that this is okay and that I will come out the other end, and this is part of my process of recovery. Thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Jana. Janice M., please share with us. Yes, thank you. Good morning to you, Melanie, and everyone on the line. My name is Janice M., and I am a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater. Okay, I'd just like to um, note the asterisk. The asterisk. I'd like to have the pleasure of reading that first, and then I'll go back to the paragraph because I think it's important. This paragraph right here, this refers to Bill's first visit with Dr. Bob. These men later became co-founders of AA. Bill's story opens the text of this book, and Dr. Bob's heads the story section. So we're talking about Bill here. Bill, Bill is a recovered alcoholic at this time. And he knows from the past that he, his purpose in order for him to stay sober, he has to um, relay this message to other alcoholics. But notice that he's recovered first. That's what I see. So his call to the clergyman, you know, led him presently to this, this man, Dr. Bob. And um, the fellowship, this is, this is so historical, a vision for you. This is how it all started, you know, with one recovered alcoholic. For us, one recovered, a recovered compulsive overeater carrying the message to another one. Um, okay, just a moment, please. Um, anyway, pardon me. So now he's um, helping himself by carrying the message to a man, to a prominent man that is in despair, which means he's hopeless. He hasn't got any hope. You know, he doesn't know what to do. However, you know, he had a desperate desire but couldn't do it himself. So um, 
he had an idea that he was abnormal. He kind of understood, you know, something, because don't forget, Dr. Bob, if we know history, was a member of the Oxford group, which was spiritual. It was, well, it was religious, religious. And he did have uh, the ten, you know, the six tenets, but he didn't know what it meant to be alcoholic, which meant he didn't know what the, what the grave nature of the problem was. And as we know, we have to know the problem before we can have a solution and before we can act on that solution and get the plan of action, which is the 12 steps. So he had to, he didn't know that he was powerless because he was kept trying on his own and on his own and on his own, like I did for many, many, many years, desperate. We could be desperate with the home, with the husband, uh, with life in general. But he didn't know the grave nature that Dr. Silkworth gave to Bill. That's the piece of the puzzle that was missing. So here we are having one recovered um, alcoholic going and searching for another desperate alcoholic, suffering compulsive overeater, so he can carry the message. And perhaps this is the beginning. This will be the beginning of a fellowship, a vision for you and I. And with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you. Who else would like to comment on what was read this morning? Hi, this is Judith in Paris, Front. Hi, Hi Judith. Good morning. I have Judith and then I have Rachel. Good morning to you, Judith. Hi, yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, there's so much in this paragraph that uh, I think stands out. Um, certainly, we're hearing about Bill taking what he had to do, doing what he had to do is get, take the message to somebody else. Um, and I read this in, you know, like the home was in jeopardy, the wife ill, you know, he's describing Dr. Bob here. And and uh, I think sometimes that I was so deep into, as many of us have been, into the mess of the, uh, you know, the addiction, the food addiction, that we have no idea what we're doing, uh, no idea that people around us are seeing this mess and experiencing this mess. And um, last night I experienced a really strange thing. I, I have a really sweet, very kind, loving husband, and he's always with me up and down the scale, so to speak. So he it was funny when he said to me last night, um, he said, yeah, you're so zen right now, so calm, so different. So, And I, I actually didn't know I had changed. So it was really good feedback to get that. But then it also brought up, oh, my God, I must have been causing way more mayhem than I ever said, uh, you know, made amends for. Uh, but, of course, we don't know. So it's the usual situation. Somebody else is going to have to help us find that. And it's wonderful when you get feedback later that it's actually changing once you're in a recovered state, as I am now. Um, but, you know, I also read this, this, you know, this desperate desire to stop. I mean, I think that's the saddest thing about us, uh, of course, is that we're so desperate to do it, but we have no idea how to do it. And there's no way out. And what it brought up for me, though, when we were reading this second part of the paragraph was that um, I spent many, many years in um, Overeaters Anonymous. Sometimes I spent years actually abstinent inside a very strict food program part of OA, and I thought that that was recovery. But really what I was doing was that I was restricting the food as the food plan told me to. And that was absolutely so, I mean, now I can see it. Like now when I speak to other people or sponsees, it's like, I cannot control food. I can only surrender my food. I have to surrender everything and all those things that do me in because they're addictive. 
uh, they're either alcoholic or aller- allergic foods or the behaviors that make me insane and probably drive everybody else insane. And, you know, we may have tried these avenues even in our own program. And I think we in A Vision for You who have recovered have to carry that message that the first and foremost thing has to happen is a person has to understand that they are so abnormal. And if they don't believe that, as I had to do this time round, which was I am so abnormal, so abnormal to the ground. My face is on the ground. My nose is down in the dirt. I'm so abnormal because I've tried everything and I'm a smart, intelligent human being except when it comes to life and food. So that kind of cuts out a lot of things. So we have to help people, I think, really see how abnormal we are, how by sharing our own story and telling, you know, how bizarre a life one can lead, you know, so good on one side and so bizarre on the other and so out of control. But I think for me, the key is it will be painful to make somebody truly aware of the abnormal mind, the craziness, I I call it mental illness, that I have a mental illness that does not allow me to stop thinking about food unless I have a higher power intervention and I am completely addicted to certain foods, certain quantities, certain behaviors that I cannot do again. Otherwise, I'll certainly end up forgetting, as it says earlier in the big book, that I will not know the truth from the false. So I love these paragraphs where it really reminds us once again that we are very abnormal. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you. Rachel H. Yes. Hi, this is Rachel H. calling from New York. i uh, really grateful to be on this meeting. Thank you all for your service. Good morning, everyone. And um, I'm driving, but I'm very fortunate that I can be listening to the meeting. And I don't have the big book open in front of me, but I was able to hear it. And um, so many thoughts pop into my head about, you know, just the denial of being an addict of being a compulsive overeater, of thinking, well, it's not so bad because when I wear a girdle, then I could fit into my clothes. Um, or I'll just always stand in the back corner of the picture and wear black and make sure the person in front of me is sitting on a chair so you can't see my body. Or, oh, hey, I'll just make sure my hair and makeup always looks good because maybe that will distract you from looking down at my body. Or maybe if I'm the, the funny person who has the best gossip, then, you know, you'll like me despite the fact that I have this insidious disease. Um, and I, I think about, I was just thinking how, for me, I sometimes look back on old pictures and I'm like, oh, my God, like, did I really look like that? And I feel like I do the same thing now about this disease. I look back, and and this is because not just the honesty, but because I work with other, alcohol, other compulsive overeaters and I work with newcomers, especially working with newcomers. When I work with newcomers, that strengthens my ability to look at that picture of myself from the outside of who I was as a compulsive overeater and be like, wow, 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 wow. Like, I, this is an ugly, ugly disease. And I knew it was ugly when I came into these rooms. I was so desperate. I mean, I was out of options. I really was out of options. I always say, for me, surrender did not mean admitting I lost the battle because I could still lose the war. For me, surrendering meant admitting I got nothing left to fight. I have no weapons and I'm completely out of out of anything. But just the, I knew I was desperate, but I don't think I realized how, how sick I was and what that looked like, not just physically, but living with me. Um, last night I was out with my husband and um, he ate something that... Um, 
comes in a wrapper that, well, oh, no, we could talk about food here. <laughs> he, he was eating chocolate, and, you know, in a pa- and, and I said, oh, how is it? Because it was a very, um, like, elite company. And, he, and I could tell by his face that it looks good, and he was like, it's okay. It's not worth it. And I'm like, it's okay, sweetie. Like, you can, you can be honest with me if you're enjoying a piece of chocolate. Like, at this point, like, I can, I can hear it, and I'll be okay. And it, it was such a wake-up call for me because I was thinking afterwards, like, oh, like, I was that person that if I was, like, on my strict diet, so if he was eating a piece of chocolate and I'd say, oh, how is it, or, how, you know, he'd be like, oh, it's not worth it, don't worry, you know, because he didn't want me to feel like I was going to miss out because then I'd want to pick it up and eat it too. And and it's like not only was I lying to myself as a compulsive reader, I, ha- I made other people have to lie too. Like that's, that's how sick I was. Like that's how just crazy this disease is that like it, it made a liar out of me and it made other people have to lie too. people who don't want to lie but they just want to be able to live with me and love me and for me to be sane so I am so grateful that I live in a solution today and I'm recovered and that I don't have to walk around all day with the desperation I don't have to walk, walk around all day with the feeling of why did I eat that yesterday what can I do today to get rid of that um, so with that I pass thank you Thank you, Rachel. And I'd like to take a moment to share as well, um, then we'll move on to the next paragraph. My name is Melanie. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And when I read this particular paragraph, I'm absolutely catapulted across the lifespan of my my um, experience with um, not being um, able to address an issue that I was painfully, painfully aware of how much a square peg in a round hole I am um, and how abnormal that is. And the idea that this phone call with somebody that had the solution, and I don't know even if he understood the solution or the impact that the solution was going to have when he made this particular phone call. So what I'm reminded of is that I walked into the rooms of many places. I was not necessarily interested in doing this alone. I walked into the rooms of um, different kinds of clubs, different kinds of way and pay places. I walked into the rooms of my doctor. I walked into the rooms of therapists, psychiatrists. Um, I gathered together groups of, of other people to, to kind of address this situation. I walked into the rooms of countless libraries and bookstores to, to go up and down the aisles of these, of these thousands and thousands and thousands of bound words to look at these ideas of, and concepts of, of changing behavior to get motivation, thought of all kinds of ways to be with other groups to give me incentive that we could do this deal together on a, on a, specific idea and mission. One was about my mind and thinking I was going crazy. The other one was about my 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 horrible girth. Um, passionately, desperately became the sole focus of my life. Going into places to get support, I did not know what it meant to be a compulsive overeater and until somebody brought me the solution. And I don't know if it was really even the last, well, it was the last time that I had to pick up, but it was because it was a solution. It wasn't the last bottom. For me because I had many, many suicidal attempts. How, how much more bottom could you get than that over my lifespan? So somebody finally brought me the solution that ended up being the last time that I had to pick up that food and get out of the intoxication that occurs to me when I read this particular um, paragraph along with you and listen to the other share. Thank you so much for allowing me to have that passionate share. And then we'll move on to our next reader, please, for the next paragraph, number two. Elena R., please. 
Good morning, this is Helena in New Jersey. When our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. A spiritual experience, he conceded, was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. He told how he lived in constant worry that those, about those who might find out about his alcoholism. He had, of course, the familiar alcoholic obsession that few knew of his drinking. Why, he argued, should he lose the remainder of his business, only to bring still more suffering to his family by foolishly admitting his plight to people from whom he made his livelihood? He would do anything, he said, but that. I'd like to just share a little bit on this. I've been listening to um, the sharing so far. Very grateful to be on this meeting. Very grateful to have the opportunity to be together, uh, picking this apart and studying it. Um, this reminds me so much of um, working with others on page 94. It tells us uh, at the very bottom of the page, your candidate may give reasons why he need not follow all the program. He may rebel at the thought of a drastic house cleaning which requires discussion with other people. Do not contradict such views. Tell him you once felt as he does, but you doubt whether you would have made much progress had you not taken action. So here we go. Dr. Bob, this wonderful man, apparently is just a typical alcoholic. He's just a typical addict as we are, and we should be taking a lot of comfort in this. He too was not so happy about this. The price seemed high. In particular, the price of going face to face to someone and admitting you are a compulsive overeater, an alcoholic, and that you have wronged them. This is a very high price. And Dr. Bob was not willing. He also had the familiar obsession, it says, just like he was the, in the usual situation in the paragraph before. He had this regular kind of thought that people didn't really know what he was doing. And I think of all the times that uh, my body was so enormously fat and had gained maybe 30 pounds, 60 pounds in the last few months. And uh, here I was trying to look as if I didn't eat very much. And, uh, I'm also um, amazed at this first sentence again. When our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. And in spite of that, he's not willing to go to any lengths yet. So again, there are people that we may be reaching out to who are not ready to go to any lengths yet. And we're going to be told in the next paragraph that he picked up and that that is what um, brought him to his knees and was willing to go to any lengths. But again, I want to also uh, say that the impression may be given that once we are in touch with God and have turned our will and our lives over and are taking the steps, that the obsession is lifted completely. And it was not like that for Dr. Bob. So I want to say on page 181 that he was not struck perfect in his um, obsession is not removed, and yet in spite of the fact that he says here that no amount of willpower that he could muster would enable him to stop drinking for long, yet on page 181 he's able to say, unlike, this is words of Dr. Bob himself, unlike most of our crowd, I did not get over my craving for liquor much during the first two and one half years of abstinence. It was always, almost always with me, but at no time have I been anywhere near yielding. So this tells me that it is something way above his willpower that stopped him from being anywhere near to yielding, even though the obsession for him was not lifted. And it says that for most people, this obsession is lifted, but I want to give some hope to those people who are still struggling with this disease 
or who are in recovery and yet the obsession has not been lifted. Pass. Thank you, Helena. Who would like to comment on what was read? Sarah W. Hi, Sarah. Good morning. Good morning, Melanie. Good morning, Vision, for you. This is Sarah W., grateful recovered compulsive reader. You know, he's saying he would do anything but that. Um, you know, it's like you're on the, you're like the little boy whistling in the dark. You know, you're on the edge. You want you want things to change, but you're not willing to do what it's going to take to to really do the change. And um, you know, I, I was reading a little bit about the bedevilments and the four horsemen, and how insidious that is. Um, you know, they say there are twelve altogether: the four horsemen and eight bedevilments. And, you know, that's the reality of what we live. You know, food is but a symptom. Uh, You know, the the way I treat people, the way I think about the world, the way I think about myself, um, really, um, you know, in the disease is so sick. Um, But, you know, on page 33, it talks about, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. And that's what I really need to concede. And, you know, in the obsession of the the mind, it says if we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservations of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. And, you know, there are newcomers out there and people in all different stages of recovery listening to this. We're all on different parts of our journey. But the reality is that, you know, we're going to, you know, if we really are a compulsive overeater, if we really have this, this, um, allergy of the body and obsession of the mind, that's not going to go away. It doesn't just leave. And if we don't stay in spiritual, you know, connection and doing the steps, um, you know, uh, we're going to go back into the food and we're basically a dry drunk, you know. If we're just putting down the food and not dealing with the steps, we're a dry drunk. I know I've been like that in recovery or in the program, you know, I've, I've, I've been in the program and been dry. Um, and so, you know, when it says the spiritual experience, he conceded was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. If we take a look at the four horsemen and, and, the, uh, and the eight bedevilments, is that how we want to live? I mean, is there really any choice in it? You know, do we want to live you know, basically, you know, a walking dead, or do we want to really live with that all pass? Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Who else would like to comment on what was read? This is Rochelle. Hi, Rochelle. Maya. Maya F. Hi, Rochelle, and then I did hear Leia S. Please go ahead, Rochelle. Okay, thank you. Uh, when I when I hear this paragraph and and I think about it, when I think about when I was first in OA and how embarrassing it was for me to walk into a meeting that God forbid somebody should see me and recognize me and figure out what I'm there for, <laughs> it's like, oh my, I mean, who am I trying to kid, you know? And and today when it's fine, you know, and uh, I try to help other people who are in the disease, and 
It reminds me of a movie that I saw a long time ago. It was called Crocodile Dundee. And there was this one scene in the movie which I, I really, I think it makes the point, and that is he, this fellow who was from the Australian outback uh, is at a cocktail party in Manhattan, and uh, there's a lady sitting there with her martini, and she says to him, so, um, uh, who's your psychiatrist? And he says to her, what's a psychiatrist? And she says, well, that's someone you tell him all the, your problems, and, uh, and he helps you. He says to me, he says, oh, yeah, we have one of those in Australia. His name is Mick. He's a bartender. I tell him all my problems, and he tells everybody else, and I don't have any more problems. So it's sort of like that. It's, it's freeing because people know that, you know, this is Rochelle, and this is the way she eats, and, um, and it's freeing because I don't have to worry that people are going to figure out what I'm doing. If they need help, they can stop me in the department store and talk to me. And uh, they know they can call me. And for me, it's the most freeing thing in my life. I don't have to worry about people knowing because they know. So with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Rochelle. Leah S. Press star one, Leah, please. Oh, I'm talking away. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, do you hear me now? I can, yes. Good morning. Good morning, everyone, and thank you. Um, I'm going to refer uh, also to, he had, of course, um, the obsession that few knew of his drinking, and then it goes on with the last, the last sentence where he says he would do anything but, but that. And that is where, um, first of all, um, I, I didn't really, when I was into my food, I, I had absolutely no idea that anyone knew about my nightly bouts and, and, you know, ratings of the refrigerator. I had no idea that anyone, I would say, I would cover it all up and, and I would say, oh, no, I don't want to eat that much or I don't want to eat this and that. And then I would just go out at night and I had absolutely no idea because I am the one in the kitchen and I'm the one who's preparing the food and, 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 and whatever. And, and then when I realized, oh, my goodness, all these times, well, everybody was quiet. Nobody ever said anything. Probably everybody lived behind my back. But you know what? I have come to face it. This is the truth. This is really the truth. And then where, where in the paragraph, um, this man, has, I, I am not sure who, who is the one who is talking, but the man he's saying, he would do anything. You know, these, are, these are all superficial talk, but that is the core. That, anything but that, that is the core of my recovery, facing everything, that, that facing everything and and just bringing it out and just um, going by the book and going by the steps and um, it is not such a mountain hill it's not such a big um, big thing and and with that I'll pass thank you thank you Leah would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph Sally hi Sally good morning Melanie good morning a vision for you this is Sally Recovered compulsive reader in South Jersey. 
this is um, such a, a wonderful page and interesting to me that we are seeing again Bill's, uh, Dr. Bob's story here. I've always wondered why they put Dr. Bob's story in the second part of the book. And it seems like they must have sat down together and said, uh, well, you put your story at the beginning of the first part of the book, and I'll put my story at the beginning of the second part of the book. But it's interesting that we do see this this man cropping up all over the first the first part of the book. Anyway, um, this wonderful page, I just wanted to start by saying at the very top of this page, it says, at random, selecting a church at random. Bill, at random, goes to the directory in a phone booth. And when, when I look at that word, at random, I see the surrender of control. There's no controlling who he's going to reach. He doesn't, it doesn't matter to him who he reaches. He is surrendered to his higher power. And he is randomly going to look in this directory, and he's going to find whoever God puts in his path. It's a wonderful thing that they should put that here on the page. And then moving down that next paragraph, um, it goes on to explain a little bit more into depth. But it tells us a little bit about the man that he finds. It tells us about his wife, his children, his bills. And standing damaged are the, the key words in that paragraph to me. Standing damaged. It reminds me of page 133. A body badly burned. He's just a mess. That's what he's telling us, that he's a mess. But then coming down to that next paragraph where we're at now, when our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. So I see here that he's talking about step one. Very much this paragraph, we, of course it's telling us that there are things he doesn't want to do and that refers us to uh, steps eight and nine, making the amends. But I also see here the beginning of the process here, the beginning of the paragraph. When our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. A spiritual experience he, con- he conceded was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the, su- the basis suggested. I want to just bring up page 11 in Bill's story. In the middle of the page, it says, but my friend sat before me and he made the point blank declaration that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His human will had failed. Doctors had pronounced him incurable. Society was about to lock him up. Like myself, he admitted complete defeat. Then he had, in effect, been raised from the dead suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. Had this power originated in him? Obviously, it had not. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute, and that was none at all. So here is Bill chatting with Dr. Bob, and Dr. Bob knows that an experience, a spiritual experience, is absolutely necessary because he's been living and breathing and and involved with the Oxford group, but he didn't have the necessary key to his recovery. And that key was the information that Dr. Silkworth provided. So I guess I'll pass with that. Thanks for letting me share with that iPad. Thank you, Sally. Would anyone else like to comment on what was read? Leah. Hi, good morning, Leah. Thanks so much, Mel, for your service. 
when our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. Obviously, this is the conversation, you know, between Bill W. and Dr. Bob. And, you know, just uh, before leaving for Akron, Dr. Silkworth had given Bill W. some great <laughs> Great advice. Remember, Bill W. had been busy uh, the past, you know, six months grabbing guys off the bar stool by their shirt collar and, uh, you know, preaching to them about absolute love and absolute honesty and, you know, <laughs> absolute, uh, you know, kindness and all those principles. But Dr. Silkworth had given Bill W. some very, very you know, valuable advice here. You know, essentially he told Bill, you know, you're having nothing but failure because you're preaching at these alcoholics. You're you're talking about the Oxford Group principles and you're talking about, you know, purity and unselfishness and, you know, being absolutely loving and that is a very big order and and frankly something that, you know, alcoholics aren't interested in. You know, so you know, stop harping on this mysterious spiritual experience because no wonder they point their finger to their heads and go out and get drunk. It's just too far of a leap. Why don't you turn your strategy around? So what Dr. Silkworth suggested is deflate their egos first. Give them the hard medical business and give it to them straight up. You know, tell them about the obsession that condemns them to drink and talk about that physical allergy that that they are biologically mandated uh, to continue drinking once they take that first drink, you know, because that allergy of the body will compel them to keep uh putting that bottle to their lips and coming from one alcoholic to another alcoholic, you're going to be able to crack those tough egos and that message that you have, Bill W., of depth and weight will be able to penetrate those tough egos. And then, and then, when you have uh, created the seriousness of a crisis of their condition, then they will be open to receiving a solution. And that's exactly what happened, and that's exactly what we do, right? That's exactly what we who are recovered do. We create a crisis. That's our aim, is to create a crisis by being straight up about what is the composition of our illness, allergy of the body, obsession of the mind. And, you know, coupled with our experience uh, and the identification process, that hopefully uh, will allow those egos to be cracked and then, you know, the solution to uh, be received. And with that, I pass. Thanks so much. Thank you, Leah. Would anyone else like to comment on what was read? Rabia? Hi, good morning, Rabia. Hi, good morning, Melanie. Thank you for your help to get me on the line this morning. This is Rabia. I am a recovered compulsive overeater from New York, and oh, I, I miss all of you when I can't be on the line, and I, I just had trouble getting on this morning. I'm so happy to be here. So, um, so I had so I'm so happy we're reading this. I, I went to two face-to-face meetings yesterday. Um, Overeaters Anonymous and Alcoholics Anonymous, and 
And in both of these meetings, there there were people in relapse. You know, they're um, they, they and I know they don't fully realize what it means to be an alcoholic. What it really means to be a compulsive overeater. You know, the uh, phenomenon of craving. I absolutely know that they don't understand this, and so I, I sat in two different twelve-step meetings and. You know, one of them, the topic was complacency. We didn't even talk about the 12-step program of recovery. And so, you know, I mean, I've shared on this line before that, and I, and the good news is I don't have an amends to make to anyone today because <laughs> I didn't step on anyone's toes. And I just prayed to both me. I just prayed. You know, I just prayed because... The second paragraph, you know, of course, a familiar obsession that few knew of his drinking. Well, for me, you know, I thought nobody knew of my eating, but I would get fat. You know, I'd go to meeting after meeting, I'd get fatter and fatter. I, you know, I, I could only hide it so much. Clothes could just hide it so much. You know, we can just hide our relapses so much from each other. And so then, I, I, so this was my solution yesterday because the problem is so much bigger than me. And we, and the second tradition. You know, I just sat there praying because for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God, as he, as he may express himself in our group conscience. And I just prayed, you know, I'm sitting in a 12-step recovery program. God is here in the middle of this room. You know, I've been guided to the solution. Thank you, God, in a vision for you. And and just praying, believing in the power of prayer that... Um, and I and I know I have a purpose of being there, and God will guide me to it. I and I don't want to turn people off either. So I don't know. It's just such a big problem. And thank you for so much for letting me share today. With that, I pass. Thank you, Rabia. Would anyone like to share on what was read? We have space for one more person to chime in here to, this morning before we close. This is Linda D. in Connecticut. I'd like to share. Hi, Linda. Good morning. Yes, Good we have morning. two minutes, it looks like. Thank you. Okay. Good morning. I'm so great, so grateful to be a recovered compulsive overeater. I, too, go to two fellowships, and I hear uh, hogwash, and I used to be part of that, and I'm really trying not to be. And um, So all that I can do is share that this is an experience for me, it's an experience from the 12 steps from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And there are many people around me that are in different stages as I'm in one stage. And I don't want to offend people. And I'm learning to share um, not out of um, a desire to rescue. I have to be very careful about that. But to speak the truth. The authentic Linda is here. This is what happened to me and um, because there's a lot of confusion. And this is what happened to me, and I have this experience, and it's not from intellect. It's from these steps, and I'm recovered one day at a time, and I'm part of the group. And uh, it's a difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing. Because we're evolving. These, the step programs are evolving. The people in the program are evolving. I'm evolving. But um, this program has given me God and myself 
and I will speak the truth, and I work very hard not to be obnoxious. So thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Linda, and thank you to everyone who shared today. We will now close with the reading from the Big Book on page 164, followed by the Serenity Prayer. And Rachel N.M., would you please read A Vision for You? Our book is meant to be suggestive only. Yes, good morning. This is Rachel M. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and anorexic. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.